Hello, welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers. I'm here with Steve O'Neill and our very special guest, Roy Phil Brown from the Mid Atlantic podcast. So, can you uh, introduce yourself, please, Roy? Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Roy Phil Brown. I've been doing Mid Atlantic since uh 2014 so six years now um i spend half of my year living in the bay area in uh but basically san francisco and california so i think it kind of uniquely places me to have uh, a bit of an insight into u.s politics and of course i'm british you can hear my brummy accent so i know a little bit and have an interest in uk politics fantastic so you are indeed perfectly placed to um, start us off, if you wouldn't mind, by telling us what is going on in US politics at the moment. And I suppose the one thing that's uh, impacting on everything is the COVID crisis. So can you tell us how that's impacting politics over there as well? Well, apart from just uh, the fact that the whole world's under this pandemic, um, the important thing is just to really to note that the US Democratic primary race has fundamentally stopped um i think it's ohio actually cancelled their primary a week ago or so and and at first joe biden the democratic front runner he seemed to be making hay out of the situation he appeared to be somewhat presidential for want of a, a better word um however um biden and definitely sanders have kind of faded into the background and it's one of the kind of unique things about the way that america is situated as these multipolar um system of government that basically city mayors and governors have really come into the fore because um whilst america is on this lockdown the epidemic itself um is kind of really localized into various different cities so detroit is kind of like um coming up uh on on the rails in terms of uh instances of covid19 and of course everybody knows that new york has got it really quite bad uh, but then also Washington State, which is kind of really where it kind of first uh, there was a, a, a bit of a spread. So the governor there um, has been um, really to the forefront. And then also Gavin Newsom, my my governor in, in California. So um, and then and then, then the other thing is to say that there has been some level, really like there's nuanced here, what I'm about to say, some level of people rallying to the course to the cause nationally um that i think everybody realizes this is not trump's fault you know you can't blame him for this but what people are very very careful to say is that that he didn't take this thing seriously um early enough and he needs to take some responsibility for that but of course trump takes no responsibility for anything you know as, as far as he's concerned his response is, has been tremendous it's been perfect um all manner of superlative ad- adjectives and stuff um the the chief medical officer of the united states a guy called fiorucci he's he's been the kind of silent star not so silent actually but the one thing and i think people have talked about this in, in talks about this in the UK that in such a crisis what um, Americans have done just like us Brits have done is actually to listen to experts and and scientists and you you can be a blowhard populist all you want but we need some hard and fast science here and Trump has deferred to him to a degree to a point where 
I think he's got somewhat kind of jealous. And also, this guy is not a politician. He is a, a proper scientist, so he knows what he's talking about. And that's kind of ruffled Trump's feathers because what he did, what Trump did want to do was just to uh, call off this lockdown as, for as soon as possible because really what he's worried about is the stock market and his ratings for him to be re-elected as a prime prime minister sorry as president but um, in in november um but just like we have over here there are daily press uh briefings and i think yesterday's was just a tour de force of trump so he went berserk attacked yamichi alcindor who is a pbs kind of well-respected uh kind of uh, reporter told her to you know to be nice and stop them um, why, why is she attacking him and all she did was just ask a totally legitimate question and then he went on to accuse a new york hospital uh you know new york hospital workers of stealing supplies you know saying that why do they need so many masks you know there is absolutely no way that any other politician could have got away in a crisis of actually saying what trump said yesterday without them being hounded out of office but we live in weird and wonderful and scary times um but he is going to looks like we're going to have another 30 days more of a lockdown in the states but suffice to say politics has uh, party politics in the states has kind of ground to a halt trump is out of his depth um local governors are doing what governors do which is to govern and to take control and the New York health system is creaking at the seams. No, thanks, Roy. It's uh, it's a similar situation here with the rallying around the flag element. So if you look at the polls, the conservatives who have long had strong leads, been sort of around about high 40s for a while. Now they're starting to top up into the 50s mm -hmm. as now admittedly there is um labor currently has no leader and hasn't really had any sort of leadership for the last five years but are due to elect a new leader soon so labor is not really in the game but we are seeing similar sort of rallying to the flag situation over here where the um people are sort of coming to support the government and in conversations around how well we think our UK government, who, let's not forget, have almost all seemingly caught COVID-19, when asked how the government is doing, a lot of people are saying, well, and I do think that the comparison with Trump is enormously helpful to the UK government, because mm. whether or not people think that they're doing a good job or a great job or whatever, they look at Trump and think, oh, my God, we are doing an awful lot better than uh, things are over in the over in the States. Mm. So I suppose, Steve, this seems uh, a good time, given that party politics is effectively on lockdown as the rest of the country, whether we can talk about some of the more broad brush and longstanding issues. So before going on to the... Um, the left, the right and the centre, we should perhaps set up a potential prism for the sort of evaluation of how we're going to look at politics and maybe culture wars, something that we talked about last time, is a useful frame to consider these things. So it is a theme of both politics, 
or politics on both sides of the Atlantic, really, these so-called culture wars. So are these culture wars, such as they are, the same? Are we overplaying any similarities? What do you think? Um, I mean, there's a lot there in the, in the topic of culture wars, and clearly it's been a huge part of our narrative in the UK recently, um, and I think in the US for a longer time. Um, but it's one of those things that it's quite hard to answer questions about because it's such an amorphous kind of thing. Um, one thing I would say about to comparing the US and the UK culture wars is that, as we've talked on the pod a lot, uh, in, in Britain, it's been largely around this one big totemic theme of Brexit. And um, it's hard to identify too many other wedge issues like that in the UK. But in the US, it seems like, and the more you kind of follow debaters, it seems to me like almost everything is a wedge issue. Um, certainly climate change over there, you hear so much about the abortion debate and things like that. I'm sure there are many others. Um, so I think it is more widespread in the US. I think it's been going on uh, quite a lot longer as well. I think, uh, well, is it fair that I think that we, the way we need to think about culture wars is a way of doing politics? So I think we can list, when thinking about what is culture wars, we can sort of list some things that are often seen as being part of the culture wars but really what culture wars is is a way of doing politics whereby everyone on one side is sort of good and the others are bad and evil and it's just complete sort of all or nothing um and wedge issues i think is probably quite a good way of putting it so is is that accurate I, I, I think so, yeah. I think that one of the big themes of it has been that the kind of debates we'd have about the detail of policy and the kind of, I mean, I, in, maybe in public, not um, into huge detail, but the kind of, we used to talk more about the evidence behind things, would things work? And now there's a feeling of either you're for climate change because you're, um, uh, not for climate change, but you're, you're for mitigating climate change and stopping it because you're liberal, or you're against all that because you're a... Uh, a conservative um, and that's the feeling in the US. I don't think that's quite penetrated to the same extent here yet um, but there, there, there are murmurs. I think we've seen some of the kind of differing views on Extinction Rebellion and things like that. I think we're starting to see it maybe not the same extent. So Royfield it seems like the national media most notoriously uh, Fox News but perhaps not mm. is maybe seem to see uh, to play a bigger role in any US culture wars than any sort of media certainly mainstream media does in the uk is that fair uh absolutely and it kind of all starts in there's a new conservative movement in the 1950s in america of which there uh of which reagan is the uh the massive turning point in american politics if you look at american politics up until that point um you had Republicans and Democrats who were they were totally interchangeable, you know, historically. And it was very easy to go from one party to another. And there's a massive, massive, massive overlap. And it was with uh, the, the, this new conservative movement in America, which has like the Federalist Society, etc., um, has this radical new vision of what it is to be American. And, and Ronald Reagan basically is that person in 1980. You then move on and then basically what happens towards uh, in his second term is that he his federal uh, communications commission abolished the fairness doctrine. And that basically said that you can have 
partisan broadcast media. Now, what has happened, though, is that traditional broadcast media, so ABC, NBC, etc., have still been pretty um, objective, shall we say. But what has happened in the US is that it gave birth to partisan cable news, which we don't have over here. And though in the 90s, organizations did try and counter Fox News with local, sorry, with left-wing, uh, left-wing um, left uh, news and punditry, but it never caught on the way that the shock jocks of the right did. So, um, but, but one of the things I think we always forget in the UK is that our newspapers are much more partisan than US newspapers actually are. So their cable news is our, are our newspapers. Their newspapers are very kind of stolid. And yes, the New York Times is kind of slightly left of center and the Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they're pretty centrist in and of themselves. So you imagine our newspaper market has moved into, you know, it, that's the analogy. Our newspaper market is their cable TV. You know, that's the way to, to to understand it. And then it's not so weird that they have this big phenomena like Fox News, which is fundamentally the Daily Mail. Yeah. So we um, are new um, sort of online political outrider sort of polemicists. Mm -hmm. That's our version of the Fox News and the sort of shock jocks in the U.S., is that where you can see a bit of a thread to the sorts of things that people might recognise over here? Yeah, I, I think so. But you've also got to remember, though, that, you know, you can have, um, and I'm not, let's say Guido Fawkes, just, just whatever, right? But you can have all the blogs that you want in the UK about UK politics, which take a very strident political view, but they're limited by the fact that they're an online blog. You know, it can't be a, underestimated as to um, how Fox News gets to that older demographic of people that are not going to be reading um, a whole load of political blogs. These are people that just have it on as wallpaper, so to speak, yeah. at, at, at home. And they're older. And they're older, yeah. you know. Yeah, I think that does sound like it's a, a real sort of difference. And that access to information is such an important part of people's lives i suppose mm. that um it's just uh, something that, that jumped out at me that you said the left had been so much less successful with the fox news and the shock jocks and yet the corbynites have certainly got um have been much more successful at establishing a um basically i suppose on one hand a business model but also a um, uh, like an infrastructure so the the Corbyn the Corbyn movement the white in the widest sense have been actually very successful at establishing their own sort of I mean basically propaganda channels I think it probably isn't too strong to call things like the canary and another another angry voice and Navarra media I mean these are possibly even stronger than something like Fox and I, I don't know enough about Fox and the shock jocks to know but these are um, real propaganda channels um, and they've actually been 
to be fair, quite successful in the establishment of these things. So um, maybe it's them that's potentially bringing it over here a little bit. Okay, so having established that um, the culture wars are going on in the US and it's fueled by the the TV and people's living rooms that they have on in the background. Let's talk about the actual state of politics over there. So, Steve, the Democrats and the left, have they learned any lessons when it comes to dealing with or beating Trump? Or are they doomed to repeat the mistakes of last time when they lost so badly? The big lesson, I think, thinking back, and I was actually, um, I haven't mentioned, I was actually out in New York during the 2016 race. So I kind of remember seeing it firsthand. But the feeling that I always uh, had throughout of it is that Democrats thought that Trump had and would disqualify himself. Um, and that clearly didn't happen. And by, by disqualify himself, I mean, the voters couldn't vote for someone who had done and said all the things that Trump had done. Well, clearly, they now know that that is not going to help them and they're going to have to find messages that cut through. Um, I think it's also been a realisation, I think some of this came across in some of the tactics in the midterms too, that actually the kind of crazy noise that Trump generates around himself um, is actually difficult to campaign against because it, it means that you get dragged off into his own media cycle and you lose it, lose discipline on your message. So I think one of the things that Democrats started to learn was stick to the message, um, something around like around healthcare, something around, um, mm. I mean, some on the left have been very good at things like Medicare for all. I think uh, uh, um, we'll talk about Biden in a minute, but he, he'll have a different message maybe about criticising what Trump would do to healthcare or try to do. Um, I think so. I think they need to learn message di discipline. I think they may have done a little bit of that. Um, and yeah, I think they now know that Trump can seriously win this time because he obviously has won before. Um, and there was a perception uh, that uh, certainly headlines are written about Clinton was starting to think about the Senate, think about appointments, take it for granted because most of the polling. Uh, and perhaps people who weren't paying close attention to it thought they were sewn up. Well, they know it's not this time. Without wanting to politicise an event that's causing the sort of devastation and death of so many people, the response to the COVID outbreak is potentially something where the um, well, it, it, it is going to become a political battlefield. Like the, these things just happen in politics. That's how it goes. But there was an advert by Biden the other day that seemed to attack Trump on competence, which I think, or at least my limited understanding, is that that hasn't tended to be the usual attack line. It's usually been, God, look at these awful things that he comes out with. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit more about Biden before we talk about his um, his ads and how the general election might go. Royfield, it looks like Biden has the nominations sewn up mm -hmm. let's put aside what on earth could happen because of covid for now and just give us your sort of best guess does biden have the nomination sewn up and so is centrism faring better in the democratic party than it is over here in the labor party um yes he's got it literally uh sewn up not mathematically so but um sanders would need to win the remaining primaries with such a gap that it's just not not feasible it's not feasible i actually in 2016 went along to his last rally um in san francisco and and that was a, a very weird affair because it was about may 
or was it early June, one or the other, but it was about a week or two before the Democratic conference and he hadn't actually conceded, though it was impossible. He put up this amazing fight and the, the atmosphere there was incredibly subdued. And he actually conceded the next day. Like he went through with the rally in San Francisco, though we all knew that he was going to concede and he just waited, did that and then conceded the next day. So so Sanders can't win. Um, Bernie, uh, you raise an interesting question and about centrism in the Labour Party as opposed to the, the Democratic Party. And I think all season watches of American politics, when you do a compare and contrast with European politics, it's further to the right. The centre of American policies is further to the right of European politics, full stop. And so if you're looking at the Democratic Party, the thing is about Biden is that Biden is actually, I would say Biden would be a liberal Democrat. He wouldn't actually be a member of the Labour Party. Uh, and also, Biden is one of the last senators, I know he's a vice president, but let's say he was one of, the, one of those last senators that came through in the 70s uh, and the 80s, who really believed in bipartisanship, really did. That's the, that was what the Senate was supposed to be all be about. We, we're not at the beck and call of the voters per se, of the populace, and Republicans and Democrats could get together to do deals to pass bills. That's what Biden is all about. He's a liberal Democrat in, in a British sense. He's not actually, uh, he wouldn't be a member of the Labour Party. He just wouldn't. And you can see that with his natural antipathy, um, I can put my teeth and say that word correctly, with his natural reluctance to go with the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party to do with uh, universal health, universal health care. Like literally, apart from Amy Klobuchar and uh, Mayor Pete, though I think Mayor Pete was definitely persuadable. All of them were saying, okay, so it's universal health care for all. You know, it's just like a given now. So Biden, you could arguably say, is on not an extreme wing of the Democratic Party, but he's on a wing of the Democratic Party, which is being crowded out by, by events, basically. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it, it's the Democratic Party is going to be. It, let's say Biden wins in November. It's going to be very interesting what happens to the, to the Democratic Party because he's going to pick uh, Stacey Abrams as his running mate. That's just, you know, that's, that's an open secret. He's going to have this black woman who's seen as a, a soft progressive. Um, she's from the South. She's a woman. She's a woman. She's a person of colour, etc. to balance his ticket. It's going to be Stacey Abrams, whatever. But on, let's say that um, we have three more months of this COVID lockdown pandemic. Politic, world politics is going to be incredibly different. And Joe Biden is going to be pulled along by events, i.e. universal health care in America. There's never been a better recruiting sergeant, sergeant for that than this crisis. Because even the most selfish American who's got his private health care plan through their workplace will concede that they need poorer Americans who are flipping burgers, who are doing the grunt jobs that don't have health care to be covered because otherwise they're going to infect everybody else. Right. So th there are going to be so many like 
if this thing goes on too like we've even seen it in in the in the uk that corbyn talked about having broadband for all it's a utility just three months ago people mocked that and that's pie in the sky now we're saying without the internet at home industry can't function Mm. you know people need so biden could end up being one of the most radical american presidents if he gets in because of covid not because of any natural instinct that he actually has but he's going to need to patch together patch back together an america and he's, he's going to be like an fdr you know so he's not he's a centrist he believes in uh, consensual politics and maybe 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 he will be uh, the right person for the job in that to take along um, some of the elements of the Republican Party into this new America where we say we need everyone to be covered because it means that we're all covered, we're all healthier if we cover the health of the least able actually to pay for it. And we have uh, better physical infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, and stuff. And actually, we prove that the government has a role to play in politics that, you know, maybe Biden is the right politician for that because he's not as divisive if I'm in red America, middle America, as a Sanders. Mm. You know, that it is, it's not quite a Nixon to China analogy, but it's almost in that, you know, no one can say that Joe Biden is not a true American that believes in America if you're on a red state, whereas people in red states would say that Bernie Sanders is a radical socialist, is a communist, is a Marxist, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So if he says we need universal health care for all and you're from um, nowhere bills in Kansas, you're like, well, this guy's a crazy socialist. Whereas Joe Biden, you can't say that. You might say he's doddering. Yeah. But ideologically, he ain't crazy. He's, a, you know, he believes in consensual politics. And so do you think then that that sort of cross party bipartisan approach is one that could be more likely to achieve not just necessarily reforms around healthcare, but reforms in general, even at a time when things are so polarised? Well, you don't even necessarily need a bipartisan approach because the Democrats, I don't know what the 538 betting is, but the Democrats have a very good chance of taking the Senate in November. Let's just take it as a given they're going to be the majority party in in Congress. Let's take it as given. The chances are, let's say it's 50-50. I I don't know what the odds are. You know, they can do the Senate. And what we need, and, and all you need is there to be a post-mortem on why is it that America had, let's say, come November, 100,000 deaths or 80,000. And that's going to be more than Britain and more than just about everywhere else other than maybe Italy. And people will say the president was asleep at the job. He didn't take it seriously uh, when the virus first came to American shores. And um, why is it that Americans will say, you know, the, the world's largest economy, the most, you know, technologically advanced how comes we had so many deaths so then you could easily see that the senate the presidency and congress all go to the democrats 
And actually, you don't need to be particularly bipartisan to get legislation through. However, what you need, though, is somebody who's temperamentally very different from Trump, somebody like Biden, who can actually talk to Americans and say we're all Americans and not be as divisive as Trump is. So, so quite unifying. Exactly. It can be a unifying figure. However, he's got the Democratic Party have three branches of government that can do whatever they want for the next two years. So there's two things I'd just like to uh, touch on. First of all is how has Biden ended up as the presumptive nominee? And secondly, can you tell us a bit more about his, um, well, I suppose, let's say potential running mate? Um, because they're, those are things that I think people on this side of the pond won't know very much about. Mm. Um, how has he become the potential? Because, that, again, it's, re it's really interesting, you know, um, history never repeats itself, but it does rhyme. So in 2016, the, Democrat, uh, the Republican Party, sorry, had this crowded field of potential um, presidential candidates. Um, I forget how many were running at the start. Let's just say for the argument's sake, it was 20. It was a lot of which Donald Trump was the joke figure. You had people like Marco Rubio or Jed Bush who were solid Republicans. Jed Bush is um, very much almost almost in the Joe Biden field lane of American politics. Like, yeah, he's a Republican. Um and he's a country club Republican, but he believes in uh, bipartisan politics. Um, he was a decent governor in Florida. I don't think he had a, a particularly bad record down there. And he comes very much from a patrician family. He's a Bush. His dad was a patrician uh, and his brother um, was the governor of Texas, who also became president as well. But what that crowded field did was the moderate Republicans were like, in effect, like cats fighting in a bag, which left the field open for Trump and arguably Senator Cruz, uh, Ted Cruz in Texas, but really Trump, to win those caucuses or primaries with relatively low vote shares. So Trump came out ahead, but he'd be doing 27%, 28%. There was a ceiling to what Trump could actually get because of this divided field. Now, the similar thing has happened to the Democratic Party this time, massively divided field. But what the Democratic uh, Party establishment realized was the same thing was going to happen where the outlier candidate, which for the Democrats in 2020 is now Bernie Sanders, that he basically wins in Iowa and then he wins in um, New Hampshire. Yeah, it was New Hampshire. That was it. But he, but it's relatively small vote shares compared to everybody else. So all, so basically, very quickly, the moderate candidates dropped out and then coalesced around Biden. So it's a similar setup to what the Republicans had in 2016, but the party reacts quickly and says no. Right, we need to stop uh, Bernie Sanders. He is too radical. When jo uh, Mayor Pete realised that he couldn't win. Amy Klobuchar et al, they all rallied behind Biden because he is the 
because they're thinking of the general election and a candidate who's going to be more of a, an American uniter as opposed to an American divider. Steve, did you want to come in at this point? Yeah, I wanted to ask a bit about the possibility of bipartisanship, because um, I remember and always thought of uh, Obama as quite a moderate figure. I know he, he was able to move around his positioning a fair bit. But the way the Republican Party has been, I know you were saying, I feel, that um, uh, Democrats could get a majority in both houses. But the way they've been since about that sort of 2008 election is completely refusing to work with Democrats on anything. Um, is there any prospect of that changing or is that just the way of things now? It's a good question. We also got to be slightly be careful. Slightly, we, have, we need to be careful of the fact that we say that the Republicans and the Democrats don't work with each other at all. Actually, a Democrat is more likely to vote on a Republican bill, number one. So Democrats are still temperamentally more uh, consensual when it comes to governance in America than Republicans. Though with the impeachment of Trump, we did see one Republican congressman, uh, it's more than one, but there's one who was quite, quite prominent actually go with the Democrats and stuff. So there still is a little bit of will on the Republican side, but it really, for me, that answer will be answered when we see what the fate of Trump is. If Trump gets a proper shellacking because of his handling of the COVID crisis. And, and then you are looking at steady Uncle Joe. You can see that come September time, Republicans um, will jump ship and they will and they won't say they're going to vote for Biden because that's not the way it, it really works over there. They'll do it quietly. But Fox News, the tenor of Fox News will change and it'll be very critical of the president because they'll just say, why is it that so many Americans died, but so many Canadians did not? What is it that they did that we didn't do? And then that will and that will really give you the answer. And if it is a case of Uncle Joe Biden becomes president, you can see because there's always is this honeymoon period in American politics as well. When a new president comes in, people talk about bipartisanship uh, for a time. So another reason why Trump is very different because Trump didn't talk about it at all. Right? Every American president always says, you know, now we're going to heal the nation, bring everyone together, blah, 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 blah. Trump basically just said, I don't care. Right. So if Biden comes in and says we need to put America back together again and he has a stonking victory and the right of being quiet for three months beforehand because Trump has been proven and shown to be inept. You can easily see that there will be all those moderate Republicans will, you know, put their heads above the parapet again. Like your Mitt Romney's. It's Mitt Romney times. So, well, you know, whoever's going to get behind him and stuff. And you can see that um, there'll be a new spirit in American politics. So I think also those moderate Republicans who are scared at the moment don't think that this is their America as well. They just, they just don't say it. They just don't say it because they're scared of being primaried. They're scared of Fox News, etc. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Just before we do um, move on, whether we can just uh, get you to talk a little bit about the vice, the likely vice presidential pick, Stacey Abrams. Picks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Is that uh, basically a done deal? Then you think? Um, absolutely. That the the Democratic Party was very 
patted itself on the back and was very proud of itself um, with the, not with the amount, but with the diversity of candidates that tried to become president. There were a few women, a few people of colour, um, you know, there was a Hispanic, there was Andrew Yang, who's Asian American, and, and it really did represent the Democratic Party in the way that the Republican Party, it, it, it really represented America in a way that the Republican Party does not. And as a way of example, um, whatever happens and whoever becomes the Democratic presidential nominee, it's number one, it's going to be a, a white dude and an old dude. But you look at the Democratic uh, Party con uh, convention this summer, it's a rainbow of colours of people. And you look at the Republican and it's all white. And so the Democratic Party was very proud of itself that it had this diverse field. If it was embarrassed about the amount of people that actually ran. As that field got whittled down, even before it got whittled down, one of the elephants in the room was Stacey Abrams. And she ran to become uh, governor of Georgia. And she missed by a, by a whisker. And arguably it was, uh, no, she's going to be a senator, not governor. High office in Georgia. <laughs> anyway, um, she missed by a whisker to do with basically, uh, not, not, not gerrymandering, but, but um, voter suppression. There you go. Sometimes I get the two kind of slightly mixed up in my head. And so she missed by a whisker. But she was this woman of colour. She represented, uh, she's from a southern state, very proud to be from a southern state, which uh, obviously historically um, very segregated uh, bit, bit of America. And she's a breath of fresh air. So I think half of those candidates, when they were initially were running in um, last year, on th and, and talking about running, were saying, if you're a man, Stacey Abrams is going to be a running mate. She is one of the most powerful, symbolic faces of the new Democratic Party. She's female, a woman of colour, seen as being wronged, incredibly eloquent. She can speak to Southern sensibilities because she's from the South, but she's going to play well in uh, the urban North. So just Joe Biden is going to pick her, full stop. <laughs> can we just talk about her experience because you kind of you talked a lot about her her backstory her background mm -hmm. but we're talking about someone who especially given that there's a global pandemic on the go and would if biden wins he will i believe be the oldest um pre person to become president and <clears throat> a lot of people have said there's a you know there's a real, very real chance that your voice president becomes the actual president sort of fair, not that deep into a um, term in office potentially so that the vice presidential pick could become could come sorry under more scrutiny than is usually the case because there is a chance of them ascending to the presidency so what's her sort of experience that could potentially make her a suitable person to step straight up into the presidency um, it's it's a fair question, right? 
um, she basically was the um, the minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives. So on a national state uh, stage, she doesn't have uh, a particularly she doesn't have any real footprint. But it, this was the first woman of color to win a party's nomination to potentially become governor. That can't be underestimated. And depending on who you speak to, she actually won that election. She won it. But the the governor at the t uh, the governor who's still the governor now, uh, the Republican incumbent, uh, was was able to subtly suppress the African American vote. So. You, 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 you raise a good point if you're saying what is her experience but also I think it's kind of also taken as a given that when Biden wins and he chooses her he is going to say I'm only going to do one term because he as he said he's an old boot so that's another thing which people are saying he's only going to do one term and basically there is going to be a, you know a coronation of her potentially to be the next president of the United States. Right. No, th thank you. That's uh, that's some really, really good stuff. I mean, it's a very odd situation where you have Biden, who is potentially being picked for one job and one job only, which is to get rid of Trump. Mm. So let's talk about the um, Bernie Sanders, who looks like he's going to run another brave um, but yet ultimately defeated campaign, which some people have uh, compared to Corbyn over here. So, Steve, is it fair to say that they have more in common than the far left just uh, running and enjoying running brave yet ultimately defeated campaigns? Or is there more similarities between them? Um, I'm firstly thing to say probably is it, while both of them uh, six months ago we thought could be in high office, neither of them are going to be now, certainly in Corbyn's case and well, certainly in Bernie's case, it's not not um, not sort of written on the door yet. Um, yeah, you're right. There are striking similarities with their stories um, and comparisons are made all the time. They both haven't changed their mind in decades. They both have a history uh, in their youth with the sort of, um, whether you want to call it hard left, far left, um, various sort of affiliations with um, slightly shady groups. And uh, in Bernie's case, I believe he went on honeymoon in the Soviet Union. Things like, stories like that, um, you hear with about both of them. Um, I think I think the the, uh, the personal comparison do fade a bit. I think Sanders is a better politician than Corbyn. I think he would have been a, a more credible um, opponent to Trump than uh, Corbyn ended up being. Uh, to, to Boris Johnson um, in the sort of wipeout we just saw over here. Um, equally, their movements, I think, uh, has a sort of similar uh, analysis in the sense that um, Corbyn's movement, there were good bits about it, but it was tarred by the anti-Semitism problem. Um, and, and where Sanders won has, has some slightly, so has this kind of Twitter, Twitter troll um, association which are unfortunate and, and damaging for it but I don't think they're nearly as bad so if I had to sort of sum all that up I would say that the sort of Sanders ads movement is a slightly better version of Corbyn's one. Okay so let's move on to uh, another issue about how politics is done and we talk about the, the left because although it is a, a sort of left v right issue I think this is something that the left has potentially 
intended to engage in more as a way of doing politics and potentially Democrats more than uh, certainly the Labour left and maybe the left in Europe. And that's about identity politics. So Royfield, the sort mm-hmm. of identity politics seems to p- play that bigger role on the left in the US. We've seen it kind of come to the fore a little bit around the Labour leadership election. So there are any lessons between one leftist movement and the other for the Labour Party from the Democrats or the other way around? I think the first thing uh, that we need to do over here is uh, to challenge the notion of identity politics because um, from an American perspective, as I've said earlier on, the Republican Party is actually the I am an I am a white American party. It is what it is. You know, 92% of African-Americans vote for the, for the Democratic Party. Uh, a majority of Latinos vote for the Democratic Party. And the majority of Jewish Americans vote for the, for the Democratic Party, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the, but, but what the Republican Party and to a, a lesser degree, the Tory Party, but definitely the Republican Party does is they they have identity politics. They use it as a weapon, but it's dog whistles. So, um, you know, white van man is it, it would be a totem for a working class uh, Tory voter. Um, and what we've got and in an American perspective, um, a, a, a Republican would say, I believe I'm just a real American. It means I'm a white American. So we just got to be really, really careful, people on the center and people on the left, that when people tar to the breast of being up for identity politics and then mash it up with culture wars and whatever, it's just language. On the one side, it's dog whistles. And they say, but, oh, you can be like me and whatever. You can be like us, but you've got to be the real American and whatever, which is which excludes and and it's something which and I've got lots of big love uh, for America in so many ways, but it's always really confused me as to why African Americans, uh, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, et al, give themselves a second class label, because there's no such thing as an English American, or you know, or the, or the label white American. They're just American. Everybody else has to qualify their American identity. Um, after their ethnicity. The whites don't. So I absolutely reject the notion of identity politics. The other side use it, but it's but it's dog whistles and it's taken as the norm. What, in American politics, when people talk about working class Americans, they mean white Americans. Middle class Americans means white, but then they'll talk about the black middle class, the black working class. So it's, it's a language thing and we've got to fight it. All right, so let's uh, let's use this as a quite a nice little segue. That the Conservative Party over here, Steve, have um, some quite prominent ethnic minority people. So maybe that might potentially be a sort of point of difference from the American Republicans. But how similar, in that and other ways? are the Conservative Party over here with the Republican Party? And is the US right just a more extreme version 
of the same trends or are the republicans now better aligned to a nigel farage whether brexit party or ukip than they are to the current conservative party who um arguably have adopted but arguably have rejected the farage-esque way of doing politics well, I think I'll start off by saying I think Rory feels right by pointing to this kind of wolf whistle politics. Um, if this phrase makes sense, I'd say the wolf whistle is louder in the US. It seems more blatant, whereas over here it seems really very sort of subtle. I think I think th- those of us who pay close attention, we can kind of see it. But I imagine people that don't would, would, would sort of, and I've had the, this, these conversations with people who will say that they think the accusations of racism against people on the right in this country are just completely overblown, but they're perhaps not seeing some of the subtleties around it. Um, I do I do think there are some trends that maybe are crossing the pond from the, the US to Britain uh, on the right in terms of how they go about politics. Um, and I was thinking about this back when we had Boris Johnson proroguing parliament, um, uh, the different things that were said about judges and things, but this idea of sort of undermining institutions that we've seen so much of Trump seems to have come over to the right over here a little bit. And Whereas a few years ago, they would have great respect for things like the rule of law. I think that is becoming more uh, a relation of convenience than it is um, a deeply held belief. Mm. OK, so Royfield then. Is Boris Johnson just the British Trump? No, no. He, for a start off, uh, there's a very clear difference. He's smarter than Trump. Right. Um, so he's a, he has a higher IQ than Trump. And whether you think he was a decent politician or not, he understands the British pol- political scene and he's he's put in a certain amount of work. Whereas Trump just parachuted in. So you don't have to agree with these politics, but you have to say that he was the mayor of London, whether he did a good or a bad job is neither here nor there. He was the mayor of London. He was he was an MP. So he's got a certain level of uh, public service behind him. What he is, though, is an opportunist and arguably a more calculated one than, than Donald Trump, I would say. Donald Trump is almost lizard brained in that Donald Trump, the COVID, the COVID uh, emergency is a case in point. Donald Trump has said in a a press conference yesterday, look at my ratings. The more people are watching me than I forget what the popular TV shows the time when I when I come on on TV. Contrast that with Boris Johnson now being somewhat serious and looking the British public in the eye and saying we've got to come together and trying to be Churchillian, you know, what they're not they're, they're similar ish but they're not boris johnson isn't boris johnson knows this is a grave national emergency and it's not about him you can also say about johnson is he also has this kind of uh brand that sort of transcends his his sort of just being a sort of politician just being a statesman he's also this kind of buffoon character and trump is a, a trump character mm-hmm. um so perhaps that's the one area that i can pull out them being being similar, whereas I think everything else you've said about the differences is, is dead right. Just just quickly, just to jump in, uh, then I'll let, let you go on. You're right to pull out the Boris brand. He's the only UK politician 
that has a brand which actually uh, goes above and beyond party. And as way of evidence, I, I did uh, date somebody some, some time ago who's a Labour Party supporter, Labour through and through, believed in the NHS and always said, but I really like Boris Johnson and had a picture of him cut out when he was on that zip wire uh, on her desk at work. And she said, he's just a lovable guy, even though I vote Labour. Yeah, and two politicians very unusually known by their first name. I mean, we had it to some extent when Johnson faced Livingston for the um, London mail ship that people tried to say, well, Ken, you know, everyone knows Ken, but no one really knows Ken in the same way that people know Boris. Mm. And um, indeed, you have the Donald over there. Um, but all right. Mm. So let, let's, uh, we talked a little bit about some other things. So let's talk about centre ground, Steve. The centre ground, the sort of moderate politics seems to be suffering and have suffered for a little while on both sides of the pond. But maybe there's a little bit of a comeback coming on with some of the things that, that we've said about Biden. So there's talk in the UK about a new socially right but economically left coalition how much is that true in the UK and is there anything similar in the US? And Royfield, if you want to come in on that as well. Yeah, I think this picks up on um, some of the things that set out about the after the election um, in December around the sort of centre of British politics being available to the Conservative Party. I think that's what they meant is that you could have a sort of broad church um, that allowed, for example, the Tories to win lots of seats uh, in the Midlands and north of the country they didn't used to win by being a bit more socially right but more economically left. And that's those are the noises that have come out of the government so far um, uh, or the early stages of it. Obviously, COVID-19 has taken over everything, so we may never know quite the trajectory it would have taken um, in terms of its sort of economic right, uh, sort of economic left policies um, if that didn't happen, but certainly they're being very interventionist at the moment. In the US... Um, I think it's a bit of a different story potentially because I, I recall the uh, during the 2016 election, Trump in certain ways took that positioning. Um, he he talked about uh, protecting healthcare for uh, working class voters, things like that that were not traditional Republican things. But when getting into office, he then promptly ditched them. Um, but it's quite possible that some of those uh, pledges and narratives that he used. Uh, helped him win in certain swing states. Um, I actually visited Pennsylvania a bit and, and Philly during the uh, during that election campaign. And that would ended up being one of the ones that Trump won and one of the key ones. So um, I think there are some similarities, but it might be that the right in the UK is going to stick with the stuff, the sort of economically left wing, more left wing platform. Uh, I, I don't think the right in the in the US is going to at all. Mm. Roy Phil. Um, I don't know. I'm just going to give you a bit of a brain dump here. And I hadn't thought about this. So I was just listening uh, to, to Steve's answer. And this is the, not a fully formed thought. But everyone has said with this rise of populists that we've had in the last just less than 10 years throughout the West, that it's the 1930s. But that came after the Great Depression, 
we're actually going to have the Great Depression now. So it's that interesting parallel that actually what has happened has been this slow dismantling of the post-war economic uh, bargain throughout, not all throughout the Western world, because Germany's managed to still hold it together. Um, Canada has been able to hold it together, but France, we've had the rise of the Front National and Italian politics has gone all over the place, etc. So that's the reason why the centre ground is, is, is kind of frayed, because for the first time in 200 years worth of industrial history, young adults now are going to be poorer than their parents. You know, my generation, um, I'm poorer than my parents, you know, so with that in mind, that is the, you know, we, we can talk about a whole load of other stuff, but economic well-being is a reason why the centre was so strong all throughout the Western world for 40 odd years since, 50 odd years since uh, the end of the Second World War. It just so happens that potentially somebody like me who would see myself as a moderate but a radical at, at the same time, and in terms of I want there to be consensual politics i want to reach out to let's say one nation tories you know to people who used to be called wets 20 odd years ago um because they do believe in society those types of people and i want and i want but i also recognize that there are elements in society that have ingrained disadvantage whether it is through class through race through gender whatever blah 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 so so I haven't really fully formed my thoughts to give you a pithy answer, but just to say that we are potentially looking at the end of the 1930s. But we, we've had a war, but it's not against uh, a human adversary. It's been against a virus. And out of that will come a radical new politics. So do you think that, Steve, that that's a way that the, the moderates from the political centre can maybe they, this is how they find their way back through a mixture of well look at what you've been left this is now a time for the state to to get back involved while also saying but hang on look at someone like trump look at these populists broken promises you need to you know come back to uh, sensible politics around the center ground i think the experience of the last few years has made me Certainly, take none of that for granted. And, and in times of, uh, you know, where we have a, a depression or difficult times, we, yeah, it's possible the public do look at uh, people like Trump and say, actually, no more of that. It's also possible that someone else gets the blame and it ends up being the experts or the swamp or the institutions that have been blamed by populists who get the blame again and it gets even worse. And I think what we can say is this COVID crisis could be a massive turning point either way. And how it plays out, how perceptions play out, I've got to say, I, I don't, I don't want to guess, um, but I think it's going to be huge either way. But I think you have to start from that as a as a starting point as to potentially how there can be a proper coalescing around kind of you know a, a new politics of which there is a centre. So you allow for a, a, each fringe there is a respectful distant uh, distance between e each faction, but in the middle where most people actually sit, because without that you don't have society, do you? You know we've got to fundamentally agree on on most things most of the time, otherwise 
society just doesn't function. So it, the centre ground is important from a practical point of view, just looking at this that way. But um, Andrew Yang um, said, went ran to be president on a platform of universal basic uh, income. And that was just total, it's just an out there notion of which us politicos, you know, we've all heard of it. And we know that like Finland did a trial of it and various places have done small trials. Even Kenya did a small trial of it in, I forget where, in, in some town where they just give gay people money. And most of those trials have actually been successful, but you have a culture, the US, whereby it's highly uh, reactionary to any perceived market change, uh, market change, and then also where the price and worth ethic is incredibly strong. And that is the reason why it has the the worst welfare system in the developed world because there are so many people that believe that um, if you are poor, if you are broke, it's kind of your own fault. You know, in a way that just doesn't, we don't really have that yeah. sentiment in Europe. I was going to pick up on your point about, and I think it's a really, really important one, this, this thing that we're kind of uh, in a bit of a period of flux at the moment. I think we've been thinking that since the rise of populism since 2008 crash that potentially caused all that. And in terms of where the centre lands is, huge, huge question is, is the centre going to be somewhere back where it used to be, or will we end up with a new kind of consensus thing? So I guess back in when we had the sort of Reagan-Thatcher era, and we, we, had, we had a sort of neoliberal uh, reforms, that something around that became the sort of coalescent centre point, not, not in the the sort of more ideological extreme versions that they pushed. But for example, could we have a swing back to the left and could the centre ground position be um, a stronger state possibly? I, I don't know, but I think this is the kind of, these are the kind of um, questions we're living through and the times we're living through. Mm. I think it will be, as, as I kind of said before, you know, to use that old maxim, you know, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. But what, one of the differences will be and let's just say that, um, let's just take as our starting point that Biden will become the next president of the United States. One of the things which will happen, and it's already started to happen in, in UK politics, is um, regional devolution. That actually cities are, are going to be one of the main engines of growth in the early 21st century. Yeah, I go back to my hometown of Birmingham and you see the amount of new buildings going up, et cetera, et cetera. And this will radically change British politics. And then there will be a move other than just central government uh, knocking more money back to, to city and regional councils because they're seen as best place to be able to tackle regional problems. This will then then after that then will become more political kind of governance that these uh, city mayors these regional mayors will have real power and that's going to massively color this post covid world and whatever where it's a case of yes it's and how the tories and how the right will get round this because it always says that you know the states you've got to dismantle the powers of the state is to bring power closer to citizens to voters almost like so you can have a like the chamberlain family in birmingham in the in the 19th century who were you know 
powerful local politicians who could actually kind of get stuff done. Kind of like what I said you know, at the start of the show about what's happening in the United States, that national politics has almost kind of ceased and it's gone back to being regional and local. And so there's lots of different ways of which this is this is going to uh, potentially play out in terms of uh, COVID. But I think that there's going to be a radical new politics and it won't just be right and left. Now, I think what you've done there is set us up brilliantly for a future conversation around uh, devolution and some of the perils and uh, pluses of devolution. But for the moment, that's been fantastic. So thank you, Royfield. Really, really appreciate that. So good to have that um, that sort of different perspective as well of uh, someone who's actually on the ground in the, in the States and who hears some of these things. So that, thanks so much for your time. Been really good. Steve, thanks so much for your insights as well. Really good as well. Thanks so much for anyone who's been listening and I hope you've really enjoyed it. Please do sort of share this widely and um, leave us some good reviews if you can. So thank you very much to everyone who's been listening and uh, goodbye.